Hey everybody, March 29th, Digital Bytes. I don't know if my intro is ever accurate, right? Because we got that week delay. It's the March 29th article that we're covering today, which is already in April. A little bit of an overlap. What do you think, Johnny? <laughs> well, good to be back on the air with, you, with yourself, James. I say this is Digital Bytes for March 29th, and we've got a, well, we've got a few, 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 few articles to talk to you today about. For, for new listeners, welcome. James Tiley from Cyber.fm, myself, uh, Johnny Fry from Team Blockchain. James is across the pond in, where well, you North Florida, South Georgia, somewhere is nice and hot, isn't it, James? South Georgia is uh, subtropical. Is that a, I'm looking for my wife for like a nod of approval. I guess it's subtropical. We got subtropical. palm trees, oh, but it can get very cold. Well, we had, uh, we had frost this morning. I'm, I'm based just south of London. And basically what we do is look at how, where, why, who, and what blockchain technology and digital assets are being used in different industries and different countries. And coming up after the break, we got our friend Stuart Griffin, but he's nothing to do with Family Man, though, is he? Oh, it's not that Stewie? Yes, oh, that's Stewie. The man with the man with the nuts. He does have nuts. This is true. Well, allegedly, but there you go. Less of that. Before that, got three different articles we're going to have a quick chat today about james carbon credits and the reshaping power of blockchain something about hybrid future for workers and we touched on this subject a couple of weeks ago i'm looking at digital nomads and how looking at having digital asset management so this isn't necessarily the sort of digital assets you're investing in but having your assets you know your creative assets and your information to allow hybrid working to become a much bigger thing you know, globally post-COVID, and also how we got a number of people projected to reach as much as a billion people will be working remotely, digital nomads and, and the like. And then after that, one of your favourite topics, James, because you're good at blowing up the local sewer, metaverse and NFTs. Oh, boy. Now, now listen, though, these three articles, you know, there's a lot of times in the past where you catch me off guard and I go, okay, a little bit above my pay grade, but that's why you're here. These three, I'm just going to say, spoiler alert, don't let me fall down that rabbit hole. Don't let me go on a rant. Let's control ourselves, because these are the good ones. We'll we'll do our best. So, okay, so carbon credits, these are basically, they they permit the owner to, if you like, emit or create a certain amount of carbon dioxide or or other greenhouse gases. And we found some statistics from an outfit called Coherent Market Insights. And they reckon the global credit market is going to reach about two trillion by twenty twenty seven. So it's not not long away now. And whilst we saw a big drop in carbon emissions in COVID nineteen because people basically weren't going to work and weren't flying around, we then saw a very big increase in in two thousand and twenty one and carried on in two thousand twenty two. And there's been a lot of controversy around carbon credits because people are saying, well, how do we know that the credits that you're actually you know, you're creating. So if you've got some, I don't know, say renewable energy, you can actually create carbon credits and then they can be sold to people that are maybe issuing and creating lots of carbon. So let's say a coal-fired power station, it has to buy carbon credits to offset the fact that it's, it's you know, helping to create climate change. But the trouble is people are saying, well, how do we know that the carbon credits being created are actually valid and relevant? And this has created quite an interesting conundrum. And that's where blockchain technology comes in so there's a there's a company called carbon place and it uses dlt blockchains to to provide a sort of settlement so that 
you can ensure that there's a, a transfer of ownership and payment in the carbon credits market. But we've also got turning sort of um, the World Bank Finance, International Finance Corporation is looking to create a fund and bring more money into the whole carbon credit trading. So we've seen a number of these other initiatives whereby they're being tracked in, in, in different, different companies. But is this something you've come across much yourself, James? No, you had me thinking about the, uh, and I think we referenced it here, the solar, selling the solar yeah. credits, they yeah. using the Internet of Things. Was that Sunified? Who was that? That's Sunified. They came on a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, and they, they, they've got a rather ingenious little sort of um, like mobile phone chip, which you can attach to solar panels or, or wind turbines. And every, I think every 30 seconds, they effectively record how much energy has been produced, where's it been produced, and what time. So they can geolocate literally the amount of power that's being produced. And then they can say to the owners of the solar farm, who then sell it on, well, we know exactly, we have the record and the data so you can be sure not only are the solar powers working or the wind turbines or biomass or whatever it is they're measuring, but also they've got captivated data so that they can verify if they're challenged. And that means that, you know, they can much they can process their claims to get carbon credits a lot more. All right. So whether or not they're processing the claims, does it have to go through or is that what we're looking for, to do? Is some sort of centralized provider to establish what the what the the bar would be? Well, essentially, what? that's that's what um, people that's what people in like the carbon place. A good example is it's it's creating that sort of settlement network. Or you've got you've got you've got a company called um, Timelys. If you remember, I was down in Australia beginning of March, and there's a company down there, and that basically gives a sort of a step by step breakdown of, of how to create tokenized carbon credits again using using a blockchain portfolio. Because there, there ha- say there have been concerns that basically people are not producing the right sort of energy and therefore they're actually not entitled to carbon credits. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to generate carbon credits just because you're producing energy, say, from renewable energy. Sorry, from fossil fuels. But you would be able to get it if you're generating from renewable energy. So people are worried that they're buying carbon credits and they refer- we refer to it in this article as zombie projects coming onto the sort of uh, market whereby actually they, 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 they shouldn't really be claiming for carbon credits, but they have been able to in, in the past. And so there's, a, uh, there's an organisation called Vera, as in the lady's name, and, and it's allowed transfer of carbon credits onto a blockchain via something called the Toucan Protocol. But, but, you know, there are a number of problems. You know, there's an outfit called CarbonPlan.org, and they're saying that they've got a number of zombie projects that were inactive, until it became, there was an incentive for, for sort of these base carbon tokens to be created. And so what they're trying to do is actually weed out the good ones and, and make sure only the, the, the proper ones can actually carry on. But this, this is something happening all over the world. You know, in Indonesia, we've got an incentivized blockchain and it's, a, it's you know, it's carbon, carbon trading. And it's recently signed an agreement with the Singapore Digital Exchange called the Metaverse Green Exchange. So people are trying to work out how they can actually do it. We've got the World World Wildlife Fund and the BCGA, Digital Ventures, and they're also looking to sort of bring this together because companies like McKenzie, they reckon the global demand for credits, carbon credits, could increase 15-fold by 2023, and then it could go up by 100-fold by 2050. So they, they reckon that the 
carbon credit market could be worth something like 100 billion in, in only sort of six or seven years time. So more and more people are looking at how do they actually verify what they're buying to make sure what they're buying is correct. And, and that's why I suppose you've got companies like Ernst & Young, and they're coming out with statements saying, in a blockchain-based ecosystem, you have very liquid digital interaction where you can pick from all sorts of different vendors, and then you can evaluate them and credit them on, on a digital basis. So people are trying to create that infrastructure so that carbon credit trading is much more efficient and much, much more transparent. Yeah, talking about regulation in this world is going to be wild because they're going to want this. And the more that you want something, the more you're going to try really hard to get it. So this is going to, in my call it pessimistic approach, the, the regulatory environment is going to have to be built around this. Well, that's a good point you made there, James, because... At the moment, carbon credit trading, to the best of my knowledge, isn't actually, it's not a regulated security from a financial service point of view, but you're going to need to see some standards as people are saying, well, okay, well, I'm buying a carbon credit from Asia to use in Europe or vice versa. How are we going to authenticate that these carbon credits are are valid? And this is where a degree of self-regulation or some sort of multinational agreements are going to have to happen because otherwise you've got companies in one country buying questionable credits from another country so it's it's not regulation as we know in financial services land but there's going to have to be some form of agreements on a on a multi-jurisdictional basis to make this really effective some sort of authority for sure yeah but then this other article we were looking at was hybrid workers and, and we were talking about digital asset management and what we're really talking about here is where you've got people working remotely. How do you make sure that someone's working from home has the same access to data and information and you're, you're achieving the same sort of standards of quality, whether they're working from home or whether they're working in an office? And so we were looking at how do you sort of, um, you know, streamline file creation and sort of make sure productivity is is the same, whether you're you've got people in the office or not, and, you know, improving the quality of the published assets by ensuring that you're all working with the same database of information. And in, some people aren't working with out-of-date information because they haven't got access to, to the right sort of stuff. We were looking at the drawbacks of hybrid working, you know, team morale, lack of communication, you know, problems with productivity. Some people seem to work really well from home, others perhaps not quite so well. And this whole standards, you know, hybrid working is great, some people are very diligent and follow the standards. Other people, you kind of need your manager breathing down your neck and making sure that you are dotting the I's and crossing the T's, so to speak. So we've just really we've been asked by a number of readers to look into this subject. And that kind of led us on to this whole concept of, you know, the digital nomads, which it's estimated there's 35 million of them currently, James. But by 2035, there's going to be a billion. And these are typically young bucks, not like old, old farts like you and me, but young Young guys are earning, you know, good money. They're not a drain on society. At the moment, they spend $787 billion a year. And there's 53 countries that offer digital nomad visas. So these are highly skilled people, digitally savvy. And to be quite honest, they're never going to turn up to your office, or very rarely. But they could be based in Portugal or Florida or Puerto Rico or Bali anywhere in the world. And these people have got the sort of skills which increasingly companies are looking for. And interestingly, countries are bidding to get hold of them. When we first started looking at digital nomads about 18 months ago, 
there were only 21 countries, James. Now we've got 53. So maybe you could log on and you could use some of your old programming digital skills and you could become a digital nomad. You know, even in the United States alone, if you think about it, if you're familiar with the U.S., you would want me earning New York-style money in Georgia, right? Because I'm going to spend that money in Georgia, even if I'm working in New York. Now, that could pose a question in the future. Does New York money become Georgia money? Does it start to flatten out, you know, level itself out based on... So when you work, your cost of living directly affects the the salary that you're going to demand. So what happens if I... hmm? Well, we've certainly seen in here in the UK, we've seen London properties stagnate for a little bit, but properties around London actually increase in value. I know a lot of people actually that only go and work in London three days a week and the other two days a week they're they're working from home or or even a senior partner of a big law firm I know I know he's he's regularly spending time working out of his property in, in Spain and he's effectively a remote worker you'd have never had that you know three or four years ago but COVID was really giving people a push and it starts questioning how do you control your digital assets i.e. the information that you have within the company how do you share workflow how do you share Emails are pretty straightforward, but if you're all working on a document or a presentation or, you know, you're doing something which is very key, core to your business, you've got to work out how you share that information through various bits of cloud technology, through Dropbox transfers, things like that. And how's that all kept in a very safe, secure environment? So it's a bit of an IT department's nightmare with hacking and cyber and the, and the rest. Yeah, so like right now, if you talk to a programmer or a developer, they're very accustomed to revisions, right? Updates, checking in, checking out, like in GitHub. Yeah. And that makes it easy to maintain. So to your point, how do you maintain uh, an administrative assistant updating a Word doc before or while the executive manager is also updating that Word doc? Well, you know, good old, good old teams and you know google docs and stuff like that the, the technology is there but it's it's bringing in a whole load of series of protocols and and, th- and this is where certainly blockchain technology can come in because it, look at the end of the day as we've said before james a blockchain is no more than an excel spreadsheet on steroids it's a it's a way to hold data information whether it's numbers or whether it's words you, you're holding that information and then you can share that information on a permission basis assuming it's a pri- it's a private blockchain if it's a public blockchain it's there out in the open. So you've got to decide which type of blockchain is the best one for your organization. We've got the tools available to enable this sort of hybrid working, this digital working and creating your digital assets and held them in a, in a secure way. And all of a sudden, um, your job or your work that you produce becomes a digital asset. For those, uh, we get that question a lot in the past, right? You always talk yeah. about digital assets. You know, it's not crypto. Well, here's your example of, an org chart for human resources becoming a digital asset. Yeah. Well, you think about it, for a lot of service-based companies, their biggest asset, you know, they, they don't have lots of stock or work in progress. Their biggest asset are their staff. And, and, and that's, that's why you're seeing certainly HR departments and HR directors becoming really, really much, much more important. You want to make sure you look after and, and you don't do the wrong thing by your staff. You make sure they have the right benefits and, the, and they're protected and looked after because they're your biggest assets. I would envision in a perfect world uh, where money or income increases with revenue, you could fit 
more employees, more staff in a shift, or you could fit more shifts in your environment by becoming a 24-7 organization, right? So you, you got staff in Africa, you've got staff in the U.S., and uh, you might even have a guy out in like Iceland, right? You're getting more work in by dividing up the hours, in which case you're hiring more. You could almost, you're effectively removing the unemployment rate. Well, we, we, we come across this, particularly in financial services, where they've outsourced work to Asia. So, you know, Europe's working on a problem or, or doing some stuff, and then they hand it over to colleagues in, say, Americas or Asia, and then the Europeans, you know, they finish work. And when they come in next day, then their colleagues in a different time, time zone have carried on doing the work, and they've actually advanced the progress. So within a 24 hours, you're, you can get at least two, if not three shifts. So you can actually respond to customers much, much faster. And, and, and that's one of the challenges that in, in sort of digital assets, where we, you're talking about investments now, whether it be funds or whether it be bonds or equities, the ability to trade 24-7 is increasingly becoming required. People want to trade when they want to trade, as opposed to saying, or you can't do something now because the market's shut, or you can't buy a fund from you know JP Morgan because they only allow trading at 12 o'clock New York time. That's just increasingly becoming the case. People say, well, that's not what I want to do. I want to be able to trade and want to be able to do something. I want to access the information now. So that, that's why we're seeing more and more interest in the whole digitization sort of going forward. So let's swing this over. If I'm working three o'clock in the morning in Georgia, Maybe if I want to meet up with a colleague, I'm going to have to use the metaverse. Well, the metaverse, it's a funny one. There's the metaverse is splitting people. You've, you've had Facebook, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the world, change its name to meta, as you know. That was and, uh, well, it's not been, they've had to, they've laid off a lot of people, Facebook have. But, but nevertheless, you've still got organizations like Citigroup reckon the metaverse could be worth an incredible eight to 13 trillion. In, in six or seven years time and if that is the case then you know that's going to be bigger than the third biggest economy in the world i.e japan then you've got companies like blackrock the biggest asset manager in the world they're putting out videos and and basically saying well you know the metaverse could be a real thing where people can interact and a lot of people think of metaverse oh well, that's just online gaming that's not for me i know there's three billion around the world that do do gaming, but that, that I, you know, I'm too old or just not interested in it. But we're seeing more and more examples in the in the fashion industry, example, in the healthcare industry, where the metaverse is beginning to be used. And you're quite right, James. Whether you're at three o'clock in the morning or whether you're midday, it can't. People don't really care. They're not going to say, "Oh, I'm not going to go online because James is or isn't there because of a time zone wherever he might be." Based. A lot of people won't know exactly where they where they are. All they'll see is your your avatar, and they'll see you in. Nike land, for example, buying a new pair of sneakers or a, a new cap, and they don't, they're not going to say, Oh, James, where are you normally? Because what do you mean by normally? You know, I'm in the metaverse where time zones don't really exist at all. I think that so, and let's be honest, Facebook became meta. You can see it right here. I'm still calling it Facebook. My mom still calls it Facebook. Everybody calls it Facebook. It's meta. And they dropped the ball. And I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to have an opinion as to why, but they did. They dropped the ball. Microsoft shut down their entire alt space for virtual reality, right? 
so you deem that if you're if you're a finance guy, you might deem that as a failure. So are we actually watching companies that wanted to be in the metaverse thought they had the confidence in the ego to build out the metaverse, and now you got Nike going, no, 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 that's you're doing it wrong, right? The National Gallery and and Sotheby's, right? Like, yep. why don't you let us handle what belongs there? That maybe we're watching the actual let the professionals do their job scenario, as opposed to what Meta thought they were going to be able to build out. Because this yeah, article, that's... this article covers, like you said, Nike Land, right? But Nike's not a tech company, correct? Correct. But so again, Nike's. Right, if Nike's not a tech company, but they want to um, get involved. Look, the dogs are getting all excited. They they need to hire people that maybe work for Meta. Yeah, I, I think I think in the past you saw some of the tech companies create platforms, environments that people came to, but at the moment in the metaverse, I'd say it's there's a lot of actual raw commercial businesses and organisations that are using this virtual land either to reach people or to do market research so yeah you're quite right you mentioned burberry you've got adidas adidas sold thirty thousand nfts pocketing 22 million just in, a, in the matter of a couple of hours uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about starbucks starbucks you know have created a uh, a series of digital engagement tokens or ways to encourage you know if, rather than give them a free cup of coffee they say no no we want to include you and embrace you and get you to join something called odyssey which is a way they're using the metaverse so we're seeing some hard-nosed business people saying we think there's some mileage here and we're interacting with people in a way that we couldn't have otherwise i i don't know why but it seems to me a little bit like the floggers and the bloggers that you see james whereby major fmcg companies you know people like colgate unilever they're not actually spending as much money on the tv in terms of advertising but spending money on influencers, and a lot of those influencers at the moment are on things like Instagram, TikTok, maybe a little bit on on Facebook's you know original Facebook platform. But they're beginning to find their way into the metaverse because people are spending more and more of their own time in the metaverse. So that's where you've got to target your marketing of those people that may be in some sort of avatar format, and they're influencing people of products to buy. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And if Citibank is to believe. We're going to see a heck of a lot more because they're saying, you know, it could be as much as 13 trillion a year of money going into the space. Yeah, you could literally buy real estate. That still is a thing, right? You could buy real estate. You could buy marketing, perhaps. So we, you know, CyberFM had a beach house in the Microsoft world and a massive taxi or limousine company, I might want to say, you know, asked us about hanging up an ad on a wall. And we effectively, we said, no, we didn't feel that it was targeted. Right. But did you that have was a real life? Uber good concept though? It was a good proof of concept for advertising. Absolutely. It was Uber good. It was, it was Uber super. <laughs> Come on, yep. keep up old boy. <laughs> but right. You got me there. The, um, if you were at a bar drinking, you would want to see an ad for Uber because you don't want to drive home. Yep, that really worked in the metaverse, though. I guess they just wanted to remind people that if this was real life, you'd want to use Uber. Yeah, just name name recognition, name yeah. recognition. James, we better. I know we're going to go rabbit on all day, but obviously, always happy to get feedback from the listeners. 
If you've got any queries, questions, then contact either James Tiley at Cyber.fm or myself, Johnny Fry. Just go to teamblockchain.net and you can sign up and get your own free copy of Digital Bytes. We send out every Wednesday. But coming after the break, we've got Stuart Griffin. He's at Superscript and he's going to be looking at cryptocurrency. Is it an antidote to counterparty risk? So basically looking at how cryptocurrencies could actually help to reduce risk, interestingly, for companies. Maybe a bit of an oxymoron there because people normally think cryptocurrencies are are volatile, risky assets. But he's got be interesting what Stuart's got to say from Subscript coming after the break, James. All right, I look forward to it. The fact his name alone, I I got to I want to say something. I I have to. Yeah, but not everyone in the world watches his family guy or family man or family fortune or whatever it is. Yeah, I know. But maybe we could convert that audience. Might be able to. Well, it's it's, it's a little TV series, so maybe it needs to find its way into the metaverse, James. There you go. All right. We'll be back straight after the break, but thank you for listening to Digital Bytes. Hey, we're over at the sidelines in between the shows, and Johnny got jokes, and I was thinking to myself, he's always talking about how I'm in Georgia, and, and him and most of his guests, to be fair, are on the opposite side of the world where I have no idea what latitude and longitude is. And we were talking about Sam Bakeman Freed, and I almost <laughs> said out loud, I'd like to shoot some beech nut in that guy's eye. And it dawned on me, you have to be from Georgia to know what that means. Johnny, say, what, you want to shoot beech nut in the Sam Bakeman Freed's eyes? Probably don't. And what is a beech nut then? Is that sort of thing? It's kind of like a buckshot with salt, and it's very spicy. And if you get shot in the eye, your eyes kind of like getting maced. But they load it into shotguns, the, the, the yeah, southern people of the U.S. Well, I think Sam Bakeman Freed is he's going to be his eyes are going to be streaming as it is if the SEC keep tightening and catching him by the short and curly, so to speak. He seems to have enough problems without you having to worry about getting some beach nuts, is it? <laughs> I think we see. I'm afraid that we've forgotten about Sam to Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank. Everybody's gonna be like, "Who's Sam?" Well, that's a really good segue, James. You are a professional, you see, because Stuart. Well, sorry, we're just yakking on here. Welcome, welcome to the show. And you've written an article about cryptocurrency, the antidote to counterparty risk. But before we get into that, I know in the past we've had one of your colleagues, Ben Davis, on the show a few months back. But can you just give a quick background to what you personally do and what a superscript and what, you know, and and hence the interest in in this topic? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Stuart Griffin based in London and I'm an account manager at Superscript. So I ultimately look after our our clients our new clients and our, our existing clients. So we're a insurance intermediary, a, a broker. Uh, we're a Lloyds of London broker. And, you know, Superscript as a wider organization, uh, we provide, you know, like an online click and buy platform. But specifically, my team is, is a digital assets team. So there's five of us who are, are crypto and blockchain nuts. And we're really into that space. And we solely spe- specialize in insurance for crypto companies. And for digital assets and, and and crypto itself. So, in a nutshell, that's that's what I am and and what Superscript is and and what we do. Oh, flipping it! We're going to keep this nut thing going all the way. You next, you can tell me you got you're a secret squirrel, really, in the insurance sector. Absolutely. That's how you hoard. I'm always burying my nuts. <laughs> oh dear! Hey oh, <laughs> me. Well, as long as you don't talk a lot of cobbler's nuts, I don't mind today. <laughs> all right, but, but Stuart, you were talking. You know, we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank, you know, which arguably is, you know, it's been a real worry 
in the sense that whilst you know what's happened with Sam Bankman Freed was well allegedly he's been telling porky pies and been doing things he shouldn't been doing but you've got Silicon Valley Bank it was the 16th biggest bank in the US and it's it's obviously fallen over and then you know Silvergate and Signature and and that got the markets rattled and we've now seen you know obviously Credit Suisse so so what do you what do you mean cryptocurrency could be an antidote to counterpart well first of all can you explain what you mean by counterparty risk and and why do you think how does how does cryptocurrency fit into all of that then uh, Stuart and your absolutely. thoughts yeah absolutely and I think for me when I saw when you asked me to write an article I was like racking my brains you know what's interesting and you know what's what's in the limelight at the moment etc and I think that for me it was a case of you know the two things that came up to, in my mind was that obviously we've got this blow up in the in the traditional banking system and ultimately most people outside of within crypto and outside of crypto you know you see the banking system as a, a relatively supposedly safe place in comparison to crypto where you take your deposit you know you put it in the bank and you know when you want withdraw that deposit shouldn't be too much of an issue it should be there and most people have you know quite a lot of trust and and they they believe that that's a a pretty straightforward done deal but the reality is that you know many people don't realize is that there is something called counterparty risk so although you've given your money to the bank the question is you know what is that bank doing with those deposits and interestingly you know silicon valley bank they weren't doing anything that was that was particularly risky that you might say they were taking you know depositors money and they were actually buying u.s government treasuries you know government debt which you could argue is one of the safest you know financial instruments in the world you know the u.s government isn't going to go out of business and ultimately they can technically speaking always pay their debts because they can just print up more dollars if they want to so you know the the chances of them losing their their deposits to the u.s governments is very is very slim but what wasn't necessarily you know factored into that equation is that if you buy bonds if the interest rates start to rise then the value of those bonds actually goes down now that's the real issue there so and it's not necessarily a problem unless you have to sell the bonds so you know what then started to happen is that there was a bit of a question mark around silicon valley bank and in a in a classic old school bank run type scenario, people started to lose confidence and they started to remove remove their money from the bank. And it got to the point where ultimately they were insolvent because the assets they had on their books wasn't actually enough to cover the you know, the de- deposit withdrawals. And you know, if that hadn't have happened, technically speaking, they can hide those losses in their books. So what what really happened there is the you know the the tech sector who was using Silicon Valley Bank as their as their as their bank to deposit in you know they had what ended up being a huge amount of counterparty risk and they only really got out of trouble because the government stepped in and the fdic decided to you know to to backstop it so that really is what counterparty risk is if you give your money to somebody are they going to be able to give it back to you that that's the bottom line flipping so but but what was what was nuts though sorry what was unfortunate was Silicon Valley Bank chief risk officer left the company last year, pocketed a tidy seven odd million. She oversaw this bond buying spree, then left it. There was no one else around, it seemed. So you're absolutely right. There's meant to be safe and secure having a bank account, but obviously it's been proved not to be the case. And this isn't just subject to subject just for the US. You know, we've got the same shenanigans going on here in, in Europe. You know, we've seen that with what's happened with Credit Suisse. But but why do you think that so where does crypto come into this because even silicon valley bank they are they are supportive of tech companies i wouldn't say they were a mega 
crypto company but but no. why why can why is crypto an antidote then to some some of the bank posits and yeah so i think again you know the idea of you know counterparty risk is that you know when you give your money to somebody else what is the you know what is the risk what are they doing with that money where are they you know where are they putting it where are they investing it you ultimately have to trust in that third party and fundamentally the whole premise of cryptocurrency and particularly you know bitcoin it's, itself was that this type of asset is a bearer asset there is no counterparty ultimately it's a peer to peer value transfer system where you hold that asset in your own wallet and there is no intermediary there is no third party so you don't have to rely on a third party and ensure that they're insolvent or that they're you know carrying out their business and doing their due diligence and mm-hmm. you know they've got risk management in place that's ensuring that you know whatever risks they are taking whether it be you know Sam Bankman-Fried who's investing in you know all sorts of risky investments or just you know S SVB putting money into the treasuries, which you'd assume was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But are they hedging that risk? You know, and and for the average person, that's very complicated. And you know, the reality is, you had you know big tech companies with you know lots of staff, and you'd, you'd imagine they've been able to do their due diligence. But clearly, you know, they put you know multiple of millions of dollars into that bank, and and the bank and the bank failed. So with with cryptocurrency, you don't have to worry about verifying the you know solvency or the credibility or the risk management of the third party because there is no third party all you're doing is relying on the protocol to carry out its intended function which is ultimately securing the network and you know the bitcoin network is the the largest most secure computer network in the world so that's interesting sir because you know it's not just ftx that we've seen you know in terms of upsetting if you like people's confidence we've seen yep. a number of examples over the last few years Yet every time we have it, the actual infrastructure, you know, systems being run on DLTs and blockchains and relying on cryptographic, you know, security, that hasn't failed. Correct. We haven't seen, we've seen a lot of volatility. You know, we've seen the crypto market go from, you know, not a lot to three trillion and back down to a trillion. And recently yep. we've seen Bitcoin rallying, you know, up 40, 50% so far this year. But that's a price action. But in terms right. of have, have the exchanges stopped have we had to sort of put in circuit breakers because people can't trade or can't get access to the money? That hasn't happened, to the best of my knowledge, since Bitcoin began, which is, you know, coming up for a dozen years or so. James, you're, you're the techie on this. Is, am I broadly right, do you think? I could be controversial here and say certain exchanges like to go into maintenance mode. But no, there is no regulation in terms of halting, like for news. Yep. Whereas you obviously do get that in stock markets where the market's fallen by or a stock's fallen by a certain you know, five or 10 percent. They stop trading to allow people to catch up. So so that would so, not happen. That would not happen in a decentralized exchange. Well, no, because they, they, in a decentralized exchange might do if the decentralized exchange set up the pr- protocol and procedures and everyone was aware of that. But at the sure. moment, best of my knowledge, they, 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 they're not set up like that with their smart contracts. Again, I think what the interesting thing here is that, you know, if you're the average person who gets their information from mainstream media, again, cryptocurrency as a catch-all phrase, you know, is a, is, a, is a bit of a dirty word. And I think it gets a lot of a lot of criticism, you know, rightly or wrongly. But 
and bitcoin often just gets you know it gets pulled into that that classification but the reality is that all of the problems that happened in the crypto space in the last year or so or you know forever all of that actually has been counterparty risk it's where people have given their bitcoin or their cryptocurrency to a third party you know if you put your crypto into an exchange wallet or you know a celsius you know yield earning facility wallet etc you're you're ultimately giving away your asset to somebody else to look after on the promise that they're going to give it back to you albeit with some interest or you're using a platform for trading so it all feeds back into counterparty risk and what you've done is you've taken a decentralized asset and a decentralized network and ecosystem and you've ultimately just injected counterparty risk back into it and as you rightly said obviously there are decentralized exchanges that run on smart contracts etc where you can actually then manage that counterparty risk you know not a lot of these things you know nothing's fail safe obviously if you have a decentralized exchange and it runs on a on a smart contract and there's a bug or a fault in the smart contract then you know that could be exploited so there is no you know fail safe in using a third party protocol and you could argue again you know if you put your money into bitcoin it hasn't happened so far in the last 14 years but who knows what's going to happen in the future you know, there are no 100% guarantees but again as i said if you hold your own cryptocurrency or be it bitcoin or ether in your own wallet and self custody it that's it there is no counterparty risk so you're removing that risk and you'll take so the, the, you know the old saying in the space is you know be your own bank and that's what you can do that is the that is the power of decentralized technologies and protocols like bitcoin is that you have the ability to custody your own bare assets so again like we said all of those so things, rather, rather than relying on a third party like a bank you absolutely. can take control of your assets and and i mean I'm, I'm interested that's true because in your article you you're talking about risk a lot and I, I assume that's because you've been steeped in the insurance world and, and high risk then presumably means high premiums. But you're, you're finding increasing demand from from customers that want they're turning to traditional markets, the insurance markets. You mentioned Lloyd's of London is one of the oldest insurance markets in the world. And they're, they're happy to accommodate and underwrite risk and take some of this risk away from people and give insurance policies. I understand. Absolutely. That's it. Exactly. So, you know, again, we, we're seeing, you know, we, we get approached by clients, you know, every, you know, every week we see a new inquiry where exactly what we're talking about. We've got well, or, or a, bit, a bit of both, actually. Either you've got we've got customers who are either custodying their own assets and they want to buy an insurance product in order to protect them for the theft of those assets, albeit from a nefarious you know, third party or collusion mm-hmm. between a third party and and somebody on the inside, or or purely theft from one of their employees, uh, you know, a fidelity loss. So they they're trying to you know transfer some of that risk to an insurance company, or they are using a third party custodian for whatever reason. And there's a number of you know either they're a trading company and they they you know they have to have assets on a a trading platform in order in, in order to you know execute their their trades. So they have to take on some of that counterparty risk in order to operate their business. And then again, they want to manage some of that risk and they want to transfer it to an insurance company or you know, they're using third party custodians because sometimes people don't want to take on the responsibility. You know, if, not your keys, not your coins. Well, if you lose your keys, then again, they're still not your coins. So there is like, like we said, there's no there's no 100 percent guarantee, because if you're going to take on that risk of having the extra security of, of of being the bearer asset holder 
then if you lose your keys, then as we know, as has happened, there's lots of examples of it. You know, the assets have gone. There is no call center to call up and, you know, get them reinstated. You know, the buck stops with you, if you will. And yeah. that's where you can buy an insurance product. Not necessarily for the, for the always for the loss of it depends. There, there are different products, but the one that I was talking about in the in the in the article specifically is a crime product where someone's stealing those those assets from you. Got it, got it. Okay, but what's I think what's going to be very interesting in your sector is that undoubtedly we're going to see more regulation coming into this space, and I cannot believe it that the regulators won't start saying that if you're operating in the space, you're going to have to have insurance, and yep. we see it in other parts of the financial service sector. So I'd imagine that you're going to see a lot more inquiries for people. Needing, you know, standard things like sort of, you know, directors and officers liability insurance or PI insurance. So you're, you're going to see more demand and therefore hopefully that will result in lower premiums because there's going to be more people coming into the market. So in, the insurance sector is going to be very, very interesting, I think, going forward. Yeah, I agree. That's it. No, complete. And we were really starting to see that, you know, there is already some regulation that's requiring you know, business operators to have, you know, a minimum level of, of insurance. So we are seeing those inquiries already. But like you said, you know, I think in reality, there's only going to be more regulation and there's only going to be more requirements for cover. And I think, again, like you've, like you've identified at the moment, one of the barriers to entry for insurance products is, is a relatively high cost due to the lack of competition and the lack of, you know, previous actuarial information to be underwritten from. But as time goes on and that pool of, you know, insurance premium builds up, then, you know, that should all help to reduce premiums. And then it becomes, you know, a bit of a snowball effect almost of, you know, lowering premiums gives you know more people opportunity to get into the insurance products and, and so on and so forth. Brilliant. Okay. James, before we uh, let's you go back to Lloyd's, any thoughts, any, any suggestions, any ideas you want to ask us? I was just thinking before about the, um, I've seen cybersecurity insurance for ransomware. I know, of, I know of a company that had gotten hit and they contacted the insurance company and the insurance company wound up saying, if you use this particular company to help with the ransomware, then we'll reimburse the amount of Bitcoin that had to be given. So yep. that did exist. It was a year or two, maybe two, three years ago, maybe. But it was a very strategic process. It was well documented and it worked. And that was it was new to me. I remember going insurance. I never heard of. Okay, cool. But it worked. It was good. So I, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think in what you're talking about in terms of insurance, only logical now. Yeah, and that's one of the products. You know, we we also provide cyber breach insurance cover, and and one of the sort of heads of cover within that product is is extortion and ransomware. So exactly that. You know, if a company's held to to ransom then the insurance company will help to, like you said, negotiate that process and that payout. And they will, yeah, they will indemnify the, uh, the insured. So again, cyber is one of the uh, products that we, that we recommend and try and help our clients with. Yeah, it definitely helped the company that I'm ref- referring to, which yeah. was a property management company. It had nothing to do with banking or financial. They just, the bad guys knew how to hit them. Absolutely. Indiscriminate, yeah. Oh yeah, you could be in any industry. So, Stuart, if people want to get more information about about what Superscript do, what's the what's the best way to get hold of you? Is it on on LinkedIn? Absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm very active on LinkedIn. So, if people want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Stuart Griffin, Superscript, more than happy to connect and communicate on there. And yeah, you know, they can drop me an email at stuart.griffin at go superscript.com or look us up on the internet. 
either way, however they want to reach out, more than happy to, to have a conversation and and help people wherever we can. Super. Okay. Well, I think, you know, without giving too much of a plug, I think it's great to see, you know, an independent insurance broker like Superfript, how they're actually, you know, able to provide, you know, insurance policies to this sector. Because I know from personal experience, a number of people often ask, well, you know, how do, I, how do I protect myself? And, you know, you know, I'm running a business. I've got some responsibility director. I need to get some insurance. So I can't get that insurance. But that's just not the case. You know, there are insurance products out there. I think we're going to see them more and more competitively priced as, as we see greater volume coming in. But Stuart, thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, hopefully we'll get you back at later in the year with some examples and other things that you've been up to and doing. But uh, James, thank you for your help again. And we'll be back on the way airwaves next week with another edition of the Digital Bike Show.